Father, we just thank you for your love for us. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you, Father, that uh, you speak to us and that you, your spirit opens our hearts to your word. Father, I pray that this morning that you will continue um, to open our hearts to what you have for us. And uh, we just ask uh, for clarity of thought and for of speech for Steve this morning as he brings us the word. Father, we thank you that you love us and thank you that you've given us your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting verse 5. What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to, to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wiser. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Thanks, Jess, for that Bible reading, and g'day, friends. G'day, everyone. Uh, as we begin, before we get into that uh, text, I, uh, I want to ask you a question. There'll be a slide come up. Who knows what this is or is an example of? Anyone know? Remember these? They were really popular back in the 90s. A stereogram. A stereogram. That's exactly what it is. It's a 3D stereogram, which is a 2D image containing a hidden 3D picture. Uh, but to see it, you need to um, adjust your focus our two eyes naturally focus at the same point on the same thing. Um, but to see the 3D image like this, uh, you need to diverge your eyes slightly. Uh, so can anyone see uh, the 3D image here? No? I know it takes time and it, you, know, you can get quite a brain strain trying to, trying to see it. Um, it's actually a fox. There's a giant fox up there, okay? In 3D, it'll jump out at you once you've got your eyes adjusted. 
Uh, but apologies if you can't see it, which is, seems to be everybody. Uh, it is a bit frustrating, I know, but it can be done, I assure you. If you've got two eyes that both work, you have the ability to see the 3D image there. Uh, but it does take practice. Um, you need to train your eyes to focus differently. And then it does get easier to do, I assure you. I uh, have become practiced at it. I really enjoy them. Uh, in fact, back in the 90s, I was given a book with 87 of them in there. That's when they were really popular. I used to run through here practicing. Um, and another, another really popular book of the day, uh, there'll be a slide from that, was called um, Magic Eye, A New Way of Looking at the World. It's a big claim, isn't it? Uh, so what does all this have to do with uh, our passage today in Paul's um, letter to the Corinthians? Uh, well, I think it's a, a helpful illustration of what Paul wants for this troubled church and in fact for what God uh, intends for all of his people, including us here today. Uh, every believer in Jesus has received the Holy Spirit, uh, as we heard last week, and so has been given a new way of looking at the world. Uh, not with a magic eye, uh, but with what you might call gospel eyes. Uh, that is, eyes of understanding that perceive the true nature of things uh, in light of the spiritual and eternal truths of the gospel. Uh, but just as our physical eyes need training to see 3D images in a stereogram, so our, our gospel eyes need training. Uh, because our default way of seeing the world uh, is through the lens of worldly wisdom. Uh, what we can see and hear and understand with our natural intellect uh, shaped and influenced by the worldview of our culture. Um, it's a constant challenge for Christians uh, in all ages and cultures, including ours, including each of us here today, whether we realise it or not. And it works itself out in every area of our lives. How we live and act is strongly shaped by our view of reality. Well, as we've heard over the past few weeks, um, this church in Corinth had many problems uh, which Paul addresses in this letter. And the first big one he tackles is the problem of division in the church. Uh, the Corinthian believers um, were forming factions around their favourite church leaders, which was causing um, jealous disputes and quarrelling. And the reason they were dividing over their leaders, Paul says, is because they were seeing them through the eyes of their culture, um, a culture that heralded the, the brilliant, smart and skillful speakers of the day. And so, although these Corinthians had become Christians, as Paul affirmed, they were still being shaped more by worldly wisdom than by the wisdom of God. So they were weighing up their own preachers and teachers according to how skillfully they spoke, uh, rather than by the gospel message they preached. And so Paul is rightly concerned. Uh, this growing um, division in the church is ugly and it's destructive to this group of believers and it's contrary to the gospel. Uh, the gospel unites believers in Christ, regardless of any earthly uh, distinctions. But this little church is dividing and fracturing. And as we heard last week, uh, Paul said the underlying problem is that they're spiritually immature. He called them mere infants in Christ. Uh, they should be mature by now, these years down the track, being increasingly shaped uh, by God's wisdom as revealed by His Spirit in the Gospel. 
but their conduct shows that they aren't. They're still worldly. So they have the Spirit, um, but Paul says they're not living by the Spirit. So he gently rebuked them, we heard last week, but he also he wants to help them to start growing and maturing. So how do you teach infants? Well, one really handy way is to get out a picture book. And that's what Paul does here in our passage today. He uses word pictures, uh, illustrations in the form of metaphors, using images of physical things that they understand well to help them uh, grasp the spiritual and eternal truths that they're clearly not understanding. And there's two main things I think that he wants them to see here. Uh, firstly, that church leaders are only servants. And secondly, that they, as a church, are God's temple. Uh, Paul sees these as two big reasons why they should stop dividing over their church leaders. He says so, actually, at the end of the passage in verse 21, which will be up on the screen, where he writes, So then, no more boasting about human leaders. So everything he says in this passage leads up to that appeal, which is really uh, helpful for us as we go through. So firstly, uh, Paul wants uh, the Corinthians to see that he and other church leaders are only servants. So let's, uh, let's have a look. Um, having just repeated the group slogans of the church, uh, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, uh, back in verse 4, he now asks the question in verse 5, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? You notice he doesn't ask who, uh, but what? He drawing their attention away from their personalities and onto their function. Um, and his answer? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Um, calling himself an Apollos um, servants would have had a big impact on these uh, Corinthians. To be a servant in, Ro in the Roman Empire was to be uh, at the lowest level of society, uh, to be owned by someone else. And yet Paul says that's precisely what he uh, and Apollos are, and by extension, uh, all gospel ministers are. They're just servants of their master, the Lord, the one who assigns their tasks. So they're hardly the sort of people uh, to boast about, right? Uh, to put on a pedestal. Uh, and he drives this point home further with uh, this first illustration, which is a horticultural one, which is right up my alley. Um, as some of you know, I worked in the horticulture industry for over 25 years, and the last half of that was uh, running my own little uh, nursery called Grow Native. Uh, and I grew many thousands of uh, plants from cuttings and seeds. Uh, but there was never any doubt in my mind that the success of my propagation efforts were, was ultimately out of my hands. Uh, and I never lost a sense of awe at seeing the miracle of life as a new seedling sprang up from a seed tray. Uh, you might relate too, if you've done any growing of things. Uh, one of my examples, the mighty river red gum, Eucalyptus camaldulensis. Uh, the seeds are, are minute. There's a slide that will come up, hopefully there. Uh, there's a photo of some. And each of those tiny seeds is, contains an embryo of life. It looks so unimpressive, 
but it's an unfathomable wonder of God's creative um, genius and power. And if planted in, in soil, in decent soil at the right depth, and watered in, a whole sequence of complex um, chemical and biological processes spring into action, uh, and all going well, germination occurs a week or two later, and a tiny little seedling emerges. And if conditions remain good, of course, and the seedling gets um, planted out into the ground in a good spot, it may eventually grow into something like this in about 200 years, perhaps. I'm sure we all agree, plant growth is incredible, isn't it? And awe-inspiring. But why? Because a person can sprinkle some seeds on some dirt and water it? No, of course not. It's because God is powerfully at work in his creation. It's God who makes things grow. And obviously, in comparison, the menial role of, uh, menial role of a person dropping some, uh, seeding some dirt and watering it is nothing. Well, the same is true of the growth of the new creation in Christ through the spread of the gospel. That's the point Paul is driving home here in this first illustration in verses 6 to 9. I planted the seed, uh, Paul says in verse 6. Uh, of course, he did that when he first came to Corinth, preaching the gospel to them. Apollos, he came later, uh, continued preaching Christ, nurturing them in the gospel. Um, so Apollos watered it, Paul says. But God has been making it grow. Of course he has, not by, um, not by chemical and biological processes, but by powerful, unseen spiritual processes. Granting people spiritual rebirth, moving them from darkness to, to light, from death to eternal life, forgiving their sins, reconciling them to himself as his adopted children. Only God can do that, of course, can't he? And so Paul says in verse 7, Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, by comparison, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labour, their own labour, for we are co-workers in God's service. Paul couldn't be clearer, could he? Uh, he and Apollos and every church leader and preacher, then and now, are only servants. Uh, and they're co-workers, notice, in God's service. They're not rivals. They have one purpose, gospel growth, just different tasks. So they're God's servants. God assigns the tasks. God makes his gospel grow, enabling people to believe it and then continuing to transform them by it. And it's God who rewards his servants according to their labour, a, a point that Paul will expand on in this, his second illustration. But before we look at that, can you see what Paul's doing here? Um, he's refocusing the Corinthians' eyes uh, and ours to see uh, that church leaders, to see them for who they really are, mere servants. And at the same time, he's redirecting their gaze from their human leaders uh, onto God, to the one who uh, sh they should be boasting in. Uh, as he said back in chapter 1, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Well, as Paul transitions to his 
second illustration in verse 9, he makes another vital point, which we'll come back to uh, soon. He tells the Corinthians, you are God's field, God's building. This uh, messy little church, Paul says, is God's field, uh, his field of seedlings uh, that he wants to grow to maturity. And they're also God's building, uh, which introduces the second illustration. And with that, Paul turns the page of uh, his picture book for these infants, and, and he takes us from the world of um, agriculture to architecture. Um, now, there's a lot of interesting details in this uh, text that we won't cover thoroughly, but I think Paul is really expanding on a point he's just made briefly, and that is that it's God alone who measures the success of his servants and who rewards them accordingly. So, Paul's second illustration is of a large building project uh, with many successive builders involved over an extended time, uh, not like planting or watering a seed. They start from the foundation and build up from there using a variety of building materials. Um, perhaps a good example for us to imagine are the great European uh, cathedrals of the Middle Ages, um, the famous Notre Dame Cathedral. Uh, in Paris, there should be a picture come up. It took more than 300 years uh, to build it, with over a thousand stonemasons and carpenters and metalsmiths and so on uh, involved in its uh, complete uh, involved in its construction until it was finally completed in 1345. But as you're probably all aware, two years ago, in 2019, during uh, some restoration work, a fire broke out in the ceiling and the upper section, uh, upper structure, uh, causing extensive damage to the roof and, and upper structure and all the timber work and other combustible materials were destroyed, uh, leaving piles of charcoal wood on the floor. I think there's a photo there, you can see them. The cross is still there, I love that. Um, of course, the same thing has happened uh, countless times to buildings through the ages, hasn't it? Uh, it's, a, it's a great illustration, it's a graphic illustration of what will and won't endure the test of fire. Uh, and Paul uses it here to help the Corinthians see that their church leaders are like builders, uh, but in a spiritual sense, uh, and that they, the church, are the building. Uh, Paul was the first builder, he says um, in verse 10, um, by the grace of God, he wisely laid the foundation, uh, which is Jesus Christ, he says in verse 11, as we heard a few weeks ago, um, the message Paul preached was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, some in Corinth believed that message and the church there began to be built up. Uh, Apollos, well, he came later. And then there are other leaders there, building, still building, on that foundation, preaching and teaching in their own particular styles and ways. Uh, but as the passage makes clear, uh, Paul warns that they need to build with care, with quality materials, uh, consistent with the foundation, uh, which is Jesus. Because as the illustration uh, helps demonstrate, the quality of their work will be tested. Um, it can't be fully seen now, uh, but it will be shown for what it is on the day, verse 13. Uh, that is the coming day of Jesus' return, Christ's return. Uh, on that day, 
The success of their work will be revealed with fire, the purifying, testing fire of God's final judgment. Uh, the six building materials listed there, you might have seen uh, in verse 12, they've been understood in various ways, but it's clear that they're in two categories. Two categories. The first three, the gold, silver, and precious stones, well, they can survive fire, whereas the second three, the wood, the hay, and the straw, can't. The point being, I think, that when it comes to the quality of the church's uh, church leaders' work in the church, only what survives the fire of judgment and endures into eternity will be rewarded. That's the, the gold, the silver, and the precious stones, which in the context of this letter most likely represents preaching and teaching as based on the message of the cross, as opposed to uh, the wood, hay, and straw of ministry based on human abilities and strategies uh, with no gospel content. I think that's what's going on. Uh, as for the rewards mentioned here, uh, I think they're best understood, probably, as the reward of seeing the eternal fruit of one's own ministry and experiencing the joy that it brings to God. Um, so those who build wisely, like Paul, with the Gospel in all its fullness will hear the words of Jesus' um, parable in Matthew 25, you'll remember them, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Uh, but those who um, build with wood, hay and straw, relying on their own wisdom, skills and abilities, well, they won't receive any reward because there won't be any fruit. Uh, no people saved and grown to maturity in Christ. And so these believers, they'll still be saved themselves, verse 15, notice that there, but only as one escaping through the flames, um, by the skin of their teeth, so to speak. So it's certainly clear that church leadership is serious business then and now. And only faithful teaching and preaching of the gospel brings people to faith in Jesus and builds up the church in Christ-like maturity. And the results of that, obviously, will only be seen in the light of eternity. It's impossible for humans to measure that success fully now, which is exactly what the Corinthians have been doing, right? They've been weighing up their leaders' success based on their own earthly observances. But if only they had eyes to see that the success of their leaders isn't for them to decide based on worldly criteria. Um, their leaders are God's servants, aren't they? So it's up to God alone to measure the quality and success of their work. And that will only be seen in the light of eternity. So Paul says, don't boast about your leaders. Don't put them on pedestals. Don't divide over them. Uh, it's a really foolish thing to do. Well, Paul now moves on to explain um, his second reason for the Corinthians to stop their divisive boasting over their leaders. And it's profound and it's wonderful and it has far-reaching implications for them uh, and for us too as a church here. It's actually been unfolding through the illustrations uh, with the, with the church pictured as God's field and God's building, but now he states it clearly in verse 16. Don't you know, sorry, but yeah, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple 
and that God's, God's Spirit dwells in your midst. What a surprising thing to say, don't you think, to this bunch of believers. It's staggering, really. They're, they're rather pathetic bunch of believers with all their mess and problems. They're God's temple, uh, Paul says, the place where He lives um, in their midst together. Uh, that's actually a plural there. When Paul says you, he's uh, using the plural. So it's collectively as one. It's incredible. It's amazing. Uh, as you probably know, the concept of God's temple runs right through the Bible. Um, from the Garden of Eden, uh, through to the tabernacle in the wilderness, and to the magnificent temple built by uh, King Solomon. Uh, and if you've ever read through the, the details of the tabernacle and temple and all of the, the way it's constructed and all the ceremonies and the offerings and the sacrifices uh, required for a God, a holy God to dwell in a sinful people, um, you get this overwhelming sense of awe at the, um, at the absolute holiness of God, uh, don't you? Uh, of course, in the New Testament, the New Testament shows that Jesus is the fulfilment of the Old Testament temple imagery. Uh, his death on the cross was the final perfect sacrifice for sin for all who believe in him. And if you remember, the veil that separated God's holy presence from the people was torn from top to bottom. The way was made for God to dwell with his people through the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And, and God dwells in his people through his spirit, who indwells every believer. Uh, that was true of these Corinthians, and it's true for us here today. We, my brothers and sisters in Christ, as a church together, are God's temple. God himself dwells in our midst. Now, how often do you think of that? Is that how we see ourselves? If I asked you to look around the room now, to look around at each other, can if you like. If you look around each other, what do you see? Do you see people different, very different from yourselves? Different backgrounds, different interests, different views on things, different opinions to yourself? Maybe uh, you even see someone that you've had a, a disagreement with of, over some issue. But if we look again, look again with gospel eyes, trained by God's word right here, by His Spirit, can we see who we, we can see who we really are? All of us here who are trusting in Jesus, we are we are one people. We are one people, united together in the gospel, equal recipients of God's saving grace, united together at the foot of the cross, and equally indwelt uh, by the Spirit of God. We are God's sacred temple together. Uh, as one. It's wonderful. And if, if it is true, which it is, then surely there's huge implications for our conduct together. Uh, for all of our conduct, which in the context of today's passage includes division. Division in the church destroys God's temple, which is serious. Uh, Paul makes that clear in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. 
That is a warning to heed, isn't it? Uh, it was for the Corinthians, it is for us, for every church, but it's an appropriate one. God's temple is sacred. And that means our conduct matters, doesn't it? It really, really matters. So how do we guard against division here in this church? Well, I think to start with, we need to see things as they really are. Not with the eyes of worldly wisdom. Uh, that's what I think Paul's referring to uh, in verse 18, where he says, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. As God's people, we need to become truly wise by becoming fools, by having the eyes of our minds and hearts increasingly shaped by the foolish message of the cross, by the gospel, and to see that actually the foolish, um, the wisdom of this world is actually foolishness. Uh, because it is in God's sight, uh, Paul says in verse 19, you can see there, and we need our eyes trained to see that too, so that we'll resist being conformed to the image, uh, to the world's thinking and conduct, and so that we'll, we'll gladly and eagerly allow us, our lives to be shaped by the gospel. Now that's what Paul, uh, Paul appealed to the Romans, actually, after explaining uh, to them what God had done for them in Jesus. He, he wrote in Romans 12 too, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. How? How does that happen? Well, by feeding on the gospel, of course, by uh, reading it daily, by living in it um, personally and together in community, hearing it preached when we gather each Sunday, uh, studying it together in home groups, so that our lives, um, in all that we do, will be transformed by the good news of Jesus more and more. The Corinthians conforming to their culture uh, meant, among other things, the temptation uh, to elevate their favourite preachers and teachers and to form factions around them. Um, maybe that's still a trap for us today, um, in some way, maybe to a much lesser extent in our own church, but perhaps we're more likely, um, maybe, to form unhealthy allegiances to online preachers uh, on YouTube or Facebook or TV. You know, we might be tempted to say, I follow Tim Keller, or I follow John Piper, or Michael Yusuf, or dot, 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 fill in the blank. But of course, of course, there's nothing wrong with being enriched in our faith through our preferred online preachers. But they should never, friends, be a cause for pride or for looking down on others who don't share our enthusiasm for them. And so Paul's words here are relevant for us as he concludes with a plea in verse 21. He says, So then, after all that he's just said, so then, no more boasting about human leaders. Because church leaders are only servants. And because we as a church are God's sacred temple. And I hope we can see that more clearly now and I hope that we can see that the implications of that uh, extend well beyond division over church leaders. We uh, live, as you're well aware, in an increasingly fractured society 
we're constantly dividing over all kinds of things, earthly things. Uh, we tend to increasingly write people off who think differently to us, um, who have different opinions about politics or pandemics or just about anything. Of course, the issue of uh, vaccines and masks is a big one at present, causing attention in families and communities. But as the church, as God's sacred temple, we must resist being conformed to our culture by being transformed in the gospel, by seeing things with gospel eyes and humbly uniting together uh, as one in this foolish but glorious message of Jesus Christ crucified, risen and reigning. That is the foundation on which the church is built. So in Christ, friends, brothers and sisters, we have been given a new way of looking at the world. C.S. Lewis uh, put it like this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because I, by it I see everything else. May that be true of us as a church, each one of us more and more. Well, Paul's final words in this passage are again surprising uh, and really uplifting. The Corinthians, well, they, they acted like they belonged to their favourite leaders, uh, like they were like rock star groupies. But Paul says, no, you don't belong to them, they belong to you. In fact, he says, in Christ, all things are yours. And brothers and sisters in Christ here today, that is true for us too. We don't need to try and elevate ourselves by our own uh, views and opinions to gain a sense of worth or identity. Uh, our identity has been given to us. We're beloved children of God together in Christ. And in Christ, in Christ, all things are ours freely as a gift. All church leaders, past and present, and all that Christ has secured for us in his death and resurrection are ours. So I'm going to finish just by reading Paul's concluding words here in verses 21 to 23. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Spirit, uh, who indwells us and gives us the ability to see and to know the glorious truths of the Gospel. Please continue to transform us into the image and likeness of Jesus, and please unite us deeply, profoundly, uh, in your gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.